0: Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John if you're not there already. John chapter 10, Pastor Dale already read it, and hopefully you read it with him, and we'll read it again. John chapter 10, this is in the middle of a conversation Jesus is having with the Jews as John described them. The conversation starts back in verse 22. In fact, to set a little bit of the context, let's let's go back to verse twenty two. We'll read. It's a longer section, but I think you guys can do it. (laughs) Verse twenty two at that time, at the feast of dedication at the time of the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. And then the verse will pick up on this morning. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning Me? The Jews answered Him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, And he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. And he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we again come before you and we ask for the illuminating power of your Spirit to give us understanding into this ancient text, this, these ancient words, which are tremendously relevant for us today. And so Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding and also give us all a heart of faith to believe what you have said. In Jesus' name, Amen. It was approximately the year 325 AD. A council was convened under the order of the emperor, the Roman emperor Constantine. And it would become known as the Council of Nicaea. It was a church council to get together all the different church leaders because there was a controversy that existed in the church. There was a controversy that existed because of a man who would become known as a heretic by the name of Arius. Arius was teaching that Jesus was not of the same substance as God, but that he was of a similar substance as God. He was kind of a lesser kind of a God, and this would become known as Arianism. Now the church for the first three centuries had been worshipping Jesus as God. And so here was this new teaching saying that Jesus was of a similar substance. And, And the debate was actually over two Greek words whether Jesus was homoousia or homoi. Homoi, like God, or homo, the same as God. And there is a legend of something that took place at this council. There was a man by the name of Nicholas. You know him as Saint Nicholas. Who after hearing some of the false teachings of Arius, stood up, went over to Arius, and slapped him on the face. You never knew Santa Claus to do anything like that, (laughs) did you? And Nicholas was evidently apprehended, arrested, and later repented of his physical abuse of Arius. But he knew that Arius was wrong in his teaching. Now, I don't advocate you following the footsteps of Nicholas, but we're going to give, hopefully you're going to see from the text this morning, three Arguments to slap away unbelief that Jesus gives. Now, Christianity is one and advances through arguments, through truth, and not through slapping people around. Let's make that clear. Not through military might like Islam, but through arguments, through ideas. And so, Jesus is going to give us three arguments here to demonstrate that indeed he is of the same substance as God, he is the God man the first is the words of Jesus and that Jesus's argument here he lays it out in his own words look at verse 30 Jesus says i and the father are one and then he's going to give a, a kind of a confusing argument in between but just in case you're not sure whether he still maintains this assertion drop your eyes down to verse 38. And He tells them, He says, If I do them, these works, though you do not believe Me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in Me, and I am in the Father. Jesus says, I and the Father are one, the Father is in Me, and I am in the Father. This is a tremendous claim here, for Jesus to say, I and the Father are one. Now, some would contest what Jesus is just saying. Well, I and the Father, we're, we're on the same page. I, I, I do what the Father tells me. But it's far more than that. And the Jewish people understood it was far more than that because of how do they respond? How do they respond in verse 31? The Jews pick up stones again to stone Him. They pick up stones to stone Him because... They understood exactly what Jesus was saying by that. He was giving a claim that He was of the same nature as Almighty, Eternal, Infinite God. Which again is a tremendous claim, right? I mean, Jesus, when Jesus lived and walked amongst men, He didn't have a halo that went around His head. He didn't have some kind of holy glow that that emanated from Him. He had a real human body, a real human nature that sweat and bled just like anybody else. We see this over and over in the Gospels. We see it in John chapter 4. He's at a well at high noon and he's thirsty. He wants a drink. We see it in Mark chapter 4 when he's taking a catnap in a boat. And yet, this same Jesus makes statements like this. I and the Father are one. And the Jewish people who were listening understood very clearly what he's saying. They picked up stones to stone him. Now, this past week, I had the opportunity to be a judge in a debate on capital punishment with some of our young people. And one of the arguments laid out by one of the teams, uh, actually both of the teams, because they wanted switching sides, but was that the, the inhumane nature of capital punishment? Namely, sometimes there's botched lethal injections and whatnot. But made me think of that when I was thinking about the Bible's prescribed method of execution, namely stoning. I mean, that's a brutal way to die. I mean, to have large rocks thrown on your head until you're dead. Now, but keep in mind here, this crowd and them picking up and carrying stones, so this is in the Solomon's porch here on the east side of, of the temple here, they probably would have had to have gone some distance carrying these large stones. And so you can just imagine, as Jesus is talking here, these young men grabbing these large stones, picking them up and getting them ready to crush Jesus' skull. Also, you need to understand, this mob wasn't exactly, exactly interested in due process here. This was a mob. It made me think of, you might have seen not long ago, videos surfacing of Rand Paul and his wife coming out from the Republican National Convention and they were surrounded by a mob of BLM peaceful protesters. (laughs) Well, peaceful protesters in our day and age, right? Who, Who wanted his head on a platter. And I mean, it's, it's a horrifying video to watch. Seeing him there with his wife, and I think there was one or two police officers, and hundreds of people who want this guy's head on a platter. Uh, this is something of what Jesus was dealing with here. These people were plotting the murder of Jesus as he's talking with them, and notice Jesus amazingly cool, calm, and collective. They want Him dead. They're picking up stones to stone Him because they understand that His claims, if they're not true, indeed, in a sense, would be blasphemous. A human being claiming to be God? And yet Jesus is going to lay forth an interesting argument here. Verse thirty-two, but before he gets there, verse thirty-two, Jesus answered them, "I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me?" Now this is almost humorous, right? You know, you know, what was it? Was it was it that time when I was teaching and everybody was hungry? In John chapter 6, and I and I multiplied all that food. What a wicked thing I did. Creating all that food to feed all those people and, and the bread and the fish. I mean, what a dastardly deed. Or perhaps it was, you know, that that guy in John chapter nine who wasn't able to see and was evidently a he was a beggar from his youth and what What a cruel thing I did when I gave him his sight. Or or perhaps it was was the the man who came to me, the nobleman whose son was in the throes of death and he's begging for me to heal him. And, And I spoke the word and immediately he was well. What a vile thing I did. Certainly it was a capital crime. Jesus is... Dropping a little sarcasm here on them. And so how do they respond in verse 33? The Jews answered him, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God." So they get very specific with the charge. The charge is not related to the things that Jesus did, the miracles, the healings, the amazing acts of supernatural that only God Himself could perform or enable somebody to perform. they saying, not because of any of that, but it's because of this. You, a mere man, make yourself out to be God. Now, I can't help but think that John... The apostle, the author of this gospel, is winking at us here. Sometimes authors do that as they're writing. They're winking at us. They're saying, did you get that? John specifically records this because remember how John started the gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, the way in which John starts this gospel is God becoming man. And their accusation is, you're a man and you're making yourself to be God. John's saying you got it backwards. God had come and clothed himself in humanity in the person of Jesus. Verse 34. You can just imagine the the tension escalating here. You can imagine, even as they utter these words, you, being a mere man, make yourself out to be God. You can imagine red faces and bulging veins out of the neck. Again, remember, they got stones ready to kill Jesus. They are not happy with Him. And yet, Jesus... It would appear, quite calmly, as going to slap them with an argument. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods. If He called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of Him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Now, if you're using a translation that gives you tips for when the Old Testament is being quoted, then you have a little bit of help here. For instance, if you're using the New American Standard, you will realize that in verse 34 when it says... Uh, I said you are God's, it's all capital letters. That's how the New American Standard designates a citation from the Old Testament. And if you're really blessed and have one of those Bibles with cross references and have no idea where in the Old Testament that is, you can look over to the right or perhaps in the middle and see that Jesus is citing from Psalm 82. And so it might be helpful for us to go back to Psalm 82 to understand a little bit of the context of what Jesus is quoting here. The book of Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible as far as the pages go. Psalm 82, it's a psalm of Asaph. Same author of Psalm 73. It's not that long of a psalm, I think we can read the whole of it. A psalm of Asaph. God takes His stand in His own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. So, what we have thus far in the psalm is God taking His stand in the midst of His people. Him indicting the leaders... Indicting them about unjust judgments, about being wicked, showing partiality, evidently maybe even taking bribes when they're rendering their judgments. They're not caring for those who are weak and vulnerable, the orphan and the widow. And then in verse 5, "...they do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken." I said you are gods and all of you are sons of the Most high that's interesting God who's standing in the midst of the assembly calls these rulers these judges who are acting wickedly he calls them Elohim he calls them gods. Then he goes on to say in verse 7, Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. So what's going on here? So basically we have the psalm in the Old Testament where God is addressing the leaders, these leaders who Jesus says... to whom the Word of God came. In other words, they had the revelation of God. They had the Pentateuch. They had the Torah. They had the Scriptures. And they were to render judgments based upon the Scriptures. And God Himself called them gods. And yet, they were men. So why on earth... Does Jesus cite this? Well, again, remember their accusation towards Jesus is, you're a man claiming to be God. So Jesus points back to the Psalm 82, a passage which refers to men as gods. Now, I think what's important here is Jesus is giving a category here, a category which God Himself establishes in the Old Testament where human beings who function in a mediatorial capacity, as go between, between God and man, stand as representative of God, are in a sense given this name of Elohim as gods. And so Jesus' argument, if you were to put it in a kind of syllogism, the major premise is that Scripture cannot be broken. That's what Jesus says. He says, your law says this. The Scriptures say this. The Scripture which cannot be broken. It's the Word of God. We agree upon that. And in the Scripture, the minor premise, is that the Scripture itself calls human beings to whom God's Word came as gods. Conclusion, there is nothing inherently blasphemous and Jesus referring to Himself as the Son of God. What Jesus is saying here is, you have stones in your hands, but if you're going to be consistent, these stones would have to be used against Asaph in Psalm 82. God Himself who speaks through Asaph for opening up this category of, of some representatives of God as mediators being called gods. As Lewis Johnson rightly points out, the incarnation is thus shown not to be alien to the spirit of the Old Testament Scriptures, and not standing in necessary conflict with the notion of monotheism, rightly understood, To the contrary, it is found in the Old Testament in typical anticipation. Another commentator says, princes and magistrates are ordained of God, derive their power from God, act for God, and stand between the people and God. Hence, in that sense, they are called gods. Now, think for us to appreciate this argument, we have to kind of try to take ourselves out of the mindset of thousands of years of celebrating Christmas and the incarnation, right? Because the idea of God becoming man for us as Christians is is in one sense not that big of a deal, right? It's it's basic Christianity. But imagine if you're these Jewish people of Jesus' day, And there's always this great chasm between Creator and creation, between God, the infinite, eternal substance, and humans. And somebody standing before you saying, I and the Father are one. I am God. I and God am one. That's a shocking statement. And so, what Jesus is doing, he's going back to the Old Testament to say that there is this category of those who are representatives of God as being called gods. And he's using this argument from the lesser to the greater. If we see this in the Old Testament, how much more, as Jesus says in verse 35, I'm sorry, verse 36, how much more? The one whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world. Being sent into the world assumes pre existence of Jesus. That he is the eternal one who sent into the world. He is set apart by the Father, sanctified by the Father. He is the Son of God. How much more does he have the right to be called the Son of God without being charged with blasphemy? So Jesus is here; he's challenging their categories here. Their categories don't allow for there to be someone who is God and man. And again, I think to appreciate this, you just you have to have to have a conversation with someone who's like a Muslim. The notion of God becoming man is, is blasphemous for them. But if you were to take a verse from the Quran, show that there are humans who are called gods in the Quran, then you say, well, that's interesting. Maybe there is a possibility of a category of one who is the God man. And this is the teaching of Scripture, my friends. Jesus is of the same substance as the Father. He is the eternal God. He is unique in that He is the one person of the triune God who came in the fullness of time and took upon Himself a second nature, so that there is this one person who has two natures one, a nature that is God and is eternal, and is uncreated, and a second nature that is human, that is created, that is finite, but bound up in that one person is God who is to be worshipped, and that's why we sang this morning, Oh, come, let us adore Him. That is why the Magi came from the East with their gifts, and they worshipped Jesus. That is why the disciples at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, they bow down and worship Jesus. Only God, Almighty God, is to be worshipped. And this is what we see in Jesus. One more little nugget I want you to see from the passage. It is interesting here when Jesus says when he speaks of himself when with this argument from the lesser to the greater if these men are called gods in Psalm 82 how much more Jesus says here in verse 36 the one whom the father sanctified and sent into the world Now in another context this probably wouldn't be as significant But remember what feast they're celebrating at this point? It's the feast of dedication. It's the feast of consecration. It was a feast that was a reminder of what happened in 165 B.C. We talked about this last week with the, the Maccabees. Remember uh, Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer Maccabeus and his brothers, and they recaptured the temple and they, they sanctified the temple because it had been polluted by pagan idolatry there was a sacrifice of a pig on the altar to Zeus that it took place in the temple and it needed to be sanctified it needed to be cleansed it needed to be rededicated so when the Maccabees took over and they had this lighting ceremony that lasted for 8 days it was a the the, the the feast of dedication or as we know it today as Hanukkah was a celebration of that sanctification of the temple. And I can't help but think Jesus standing before these people who are in the midst of their Hanukkah celebration speaks of himself as the sanctified one. He speaks of himself as the real temple. This isn't something that's new in the Gospel of John, right? In John chapter 2. Remember Jesus before, and the crowd after he had driven the the money changers and and those selling the animals out of the temple, and they say, By what authority do you do these things? And, And give us a sign! Give us a sign! And Jesus says, What? Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And remember how they respond? You're crazy. It's taken us decades, 46 years to build this temple. You're, you're going to build it in three days? And then John tells us that Jesus was talking about what? He was talking about the temple of His body. Jesus is the temple. What do you mean Jesus is the temple? What was the significance of the temple? The temple was where God manifested Himself. The temple was where every faithful covenant keeper in Israel would come and worship the true and living God. The temple was the place of access to God. It was the way to God. The temple was the place of sacrifice. And all that is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. He is God in the flesh. God manifest. He is the object of our worship. He is where we meet with God as the way, the truth, and the life. He is also the way we meet with God through sacrifice. As He hung on that Roman cross, bearing in His body The full fury of the Father's wrath. So that rebels like you and I who deserve eternal hell could be reconciled to the great God. He is the sanctified one. And sent into the world. Sent on this mission. This saving mission. Friend, is Jesus your place of worship? Is Jesus the One who when you hear in the song the summon to come let us adore Him is He the One whom you adore? Is He the One who you ascribe the highest worth in your life? Is He a mere part of your life? Or is He the point of your life? Friends, He deserves to be the point of our life. He deserves to be the One who attracts all of our affections and love and devotion. The One in whom there's nothing we would not do. No task too great, too small. Are you devoted to Him? If not, my friend, go to Him, the One who is the place of sacrifice. Trust and believe in Him. Well, we see that Jesus is the God-man. First argument, slap against unbelief, is because of the words of Jesus. Is clear argument. Secondly, the works of Jesus. Notice Jesus continues this theme in verse 37. He says, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. If I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. This is fascinating here. It's almost like despite this this group of people being so hostile to Jesus, so angry, they want him dead... And yet, in some ways, he's, he's very accommodating to them. He, he's kind to them. And in a sense, he appreciates the reality that him being God in the flesh is a very tough pill to swallow. And so it's almost as if he's saying, okay, if you're not, if you're not quite fixed on believing my argument here, look at the things I do. Look at my works. Look at the stuff that I do. I'm doing the works of the Father. Perhaps maybe we can just kind of pry open a little bit of a heart of openness to the truthfulness of what I'm saying if you just look at the stuff that I do. And this isn't anything new in this section. Remember he said in verse 25 and 26... I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in My Father's name. These testify of Me. And then we also mention this in verse 32. Jesus answered them, I show you many good works from the Father, for which of these do you stow Me? In other words, Jesus keeps pointing to these works that He does in the language of the Apostle John. These are signs, and, and that's very intentional. These are signs, these miracles are signs, because a sign points to something. A sign is an indicator, and all the signs of Jesus tell us something about who Jesus is. For instance, in chapter four, I mentioned it already, when there's the nobleman whose son is in the throes of death, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his son. Jesus speaks a word. Jesus doesn't leave, he doesn't go there, he doesn't put his hands on, he just says, He's good, he's healed. What is that? Jesus is demonstrating His omnipresence that he, he can be both there and over there with the sick boy at the same time. His power. His power over death. His power to heal. We see it also. Chapter 5, here's this man who had been unable to walk for 38 years. He's he's trying all the gimmicks that ancient Israel had to offer. He's he's trying to get in the the, the pool of Siloam. Jesus just immediately gives him a new set of wheels. He's able to walk. Tells us Jesus' power. And even in that context, remember the objection of the the religious leaders was, you did this on the Sabbath. Sabbath. And remember Jesus' response? My Father works on the Sabbath and I'm working. (sighs) God doesn't take a Sabbath break. I'm God. I don't take a break on the Sabbath. Wow. Again, it's pointing a sign. Believe. Jesus says, look at the works that I do. The works point to who? Jesus is, chapter 6, a creation miracle, right? The feeding of the multitude, 5,000 men, maybe 20,000 people, to create enough food, to cater a meal for thousands of people. Again, it's telling us the same thing that John said of him in the prologue, that Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. He's the Creator. He's the One who's with the Father and the Spirit at the beginning of creation. We see it in chapter 8-9, the man born blind, Jesus spits into dirt. And mixes it up. And again, you can't help but think that as Adam was made out of the dust of the ground, so Jesus is going to create this guy new eyes out of the dirt. And He does it. And so Jesus, in a sense here, again, He's kind of accommodating to them, saying, okay, if you're not going to swallow My words right now. Look at My works. These point back to My words. Yes, they are intertwined, but, but they give you real, tangible evidence that I am God, a very God. I am of the same substance as the Father. I am who I claim to be. And notice what Jesus says here. In verse 38, he says, Believe the works so that you may know and understand. Now, if you have a New American Standard, they're always trying to be as literal as possible. So they have a marginal reading. If you look at the little number one next to know, and it says know and continue knowing. It's actually the exact same word, but the first word is in one tense and the, the, the second word, the second know or understand is in a continual tense. In other words, that you may know, you may understand and continue in knowing. In other words, believe these works. If you start here and you believe the things that I've done and what they point to about me, you're going to begin to know and then you'll continue to know and understand more. Jesus is demonstrating tremendous Patience here with this very angry, hostile crowd. He wants their hearts, He wants them to believe, He wants them to understand who He is. He wants them to bank their life. And John the Apostle records all of this so that his audience would believe. That's what he said in uh, John chapter 20 in verse 30 and 31. These signs have been given. They've been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. And so, friends, this isn't just mere highfalutin theological argumentation that's going on here with Jesus, your eternal destiny hangs in the balance as to what you believe about Jesus. So that Christmas is not just about warm, fuzzy feelings. It's about the reality of the eternal God... Becoming flesh and dwelling amongst men and living a perfect life ultimately to give His life as a sacrifice upon the cross and to rise from the dead. And that must be believed and you must bank your eternity on that. And so it's worth pausing and asking, have you put all your eggs in that basket? Is that what you're banking on for your eternity? And if that is what you're banking on, Jesus ought to be the object of your full-throttled devotion and worship. Indeed, we ought to adore Him. I hope you understand not everybody believes this. These works point to Jesus as God. I was recently reading... Website, another church very close by, and in their explanation of the gospel, it says this as 100% God and 100% man, speaking of Jesus, good so far, yet speaking of Jesus laying down his deity and submitting himself to walk in the flesh as man. What's wrong with that statement? He never lays aside his deity. He takes upon an additional nature, but never setting aside his deity. Because if he did that, as if that's possible, as if there's an off button for God, you know, I'm going to shut off for 33 and a half years. But... Not only that, Jesus' argument would fold here because He's saying the works that I do point to who I am as God. And so He's not divesting Himself of His deity. And the rationale, I understand, that's not so much biblical theology as much as Bill Johnson theology. That's Bill Johnson out of Bethel. That's his argument for why you should be able to do all the miracles of Jesus Because Jesus only did His miracles as a man because He wasn't God when He was here on earth. And so you should be able to do the same miracles of Jesus as Jesus. But again, Jesus' argument is these miracles prove who I am, not as man, but as God. But then notice verse 39. They were seeking... You okay, Becky? Yeah. Okay. Okay. If you look at verse 39, it says, Therefore they were seeking again to seize Him, and He eluded their grasp. This isn't new in the Gospel of John. This is what we see over and over. We saw at the end of chapter 8, 59, it says they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself again went out of the temple over and over throughout the Gospel of John. Remember, Jesus would say things like, my hour has not yet come. Or or John would record that that they were unable to, to arrest him because his hour had not yet come. And all this is demonstrating what he said in chapter 10. I think it's in verse 17 or 18 when he says, no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to... To take it up again. Jesus demonstrates his complete control over the situation. Again, they have stones to try and stone him, but it's this Jesus who is sustaining their very heartbeat as they're in his presence. He's upholding the lives of those who are seeking to kill him, and when he chooses to leave, he leaves. Because it wasn't yet his time. Oh, he would lay down his life of his own accord. He would lay it down, but not yet. Not yet. And then a new setting comes about in verse 40. And this leads us to our last point. The first argument is the... Words of Jesus. The second argument is the works of Jesus. The third argument we see in 40 through 42, the witness to Jesus. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing. And he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So Jesus leaves the hostile crowd, and he goes to this area by the Jordan River, this place where John, John the Baptist was first baptizing. And... Jesus stayed there, and many came to Jesus. And they're saying they're remembering John, who's probably dead at this point. Remember, Herod had his head chopped off. So he's 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 probably dead at this point. And this crowd is saying, everything John said about this man was true, even though John never did any miracles. Never did any supernatural. But everything he said about Jesus was true. This was the witness of John. The last prophet before Jesus. John's testimony is important throughout the Gospel of John. In the prologue, the introduction to the Gospel of John, verses 6-8 through in chapter 1, there came a man sent from God, You'd almost think it would say, His name was Jesus. But it doesn't, does it? There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came a witness to testify about the light so that all men might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to testify about the light. In John one fifteen, John testified of Jesus. This was He of whom I said... After me comes one who is of a higher rank than I, because he existed before me. He would say, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In other words, John the Baptist had this exalted view of Jesus that he is the pre-existent eternal God. He is the one, he, John would say, I baptize with water, Right? But He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I mean, who baptizes with God, the third person of the Trinity? Except God, the second person of the Trinity. And so... John the Apostle, here, as he's recording this, after he's recorded Jesus' argument in the midst of this hostility, he's recorded Jesus', he spoke of Jesus' testimony about his works, and now he points to John, good old faithful John, who some years prior had sowed seeds telling them of the one who had come. And these seeds began to grow and flourish and produce fruit so that when Jesus came back to this area many were believing and it's really summarized by John in John 112 and 13 in 110 he came into his own and his own did not receive him But to all who received Him, to those who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Some didn't believe. They had stones. But some did believe when Jesus goes back to Jordan... And John chooses to tell us that they believed based upon the testimony of John the Baptist. That was the first seed that was dropped on their hearts. And what an encouragement, friends, to testify of this Jesus. To tell people. To tell people about this great God who's come down to earth. Not the man who makes himself out to be God, but the God who makes himself man. I mean, what God is there who would do such a thing? Who would clothe himself among sinners in a human body and die on a Roman cross to serve us rebels? And what better time of year can there be than this time of year. Right? You can get away with a lot more during this time of year than any other time of year because nobody wants to be a ball humbug. And so, exploit it. Take advantage of it. Tell co-workers about the true story of the God who became man. Tell friends. And perhaps just like John's testimony, it might produce fruit and people believe. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word that testifies of Jesus. Lord, give us all a heart of faith to adore this Jesus, to worship Him, to be devoted to Him, and even to testify of Him with love, with compassion, but also with boldness for Your glory.